Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tortoise. Can I ask, do you feel safe in London? Yes and no. I feel safe because I'm in one of the safest places in the world. And I have a level of protection. But that's obvious that this kind of threat comes from Iran. So, yeah, we are safe. And, but at the same time, I'm not. Because it's it makes more concern for me about my life, about my family, about my friends. We need to have kind of end. Enough is enough. But right now I'm feeling what people in Iran they feel. Why people in Iran are protesting? Because they are saying to the government that enough is enough. I'm Paul Caruana Galizia, and this is Londongrad, Iran's hit squads, episode four. Aliazgar Ramazanpur executive editor of Iran International, the TV station in Chiswick, received two warnings about credible and imminent threats to his life from counter-terrorism police. He now moves around London with a security guard. He's not the only Iranian journalist in the UK who's been targeted by Iran. Since January 2022, police and MI5 have intercepted more than 15 such plots. London became a haven for Iranian journalists over many years. But now those journalists are reporting, in Persian, on an unprecedented wave of unrest. One that's threatening the survival of the Islamic theocracy that has ruled Iran since 1979. This could signal profound change, but the trajectory is uncertain. For now, we see the regime resorting to violence to silence critics. This is Ken McCallum, MI5's Director General, in his last annual threat update in November at Thames House. That the UK will not tolerate intimidation or threats to life towards journalists or any individual. 
living in the UK. But that's not what it looks like to many Iranians. And the reason that you can see that kind of angry reaction inside Iran and outside Iran about mainstream media everywhere and about the Western government, they have kind of angry tone in talking is because they are saying to them, why you can't see what what's happening in Iran? And you are ignoring that. While the Home Office, which is responsible for MI5 and the police, talks tough on Iran, the Foreign Office is resisting calls for tougher sanctions. To opponents of the regime in Tehran living in London, the UK often appears to be soft on Iran. But why? There have always been different visions of Iran. It had three major revolutions over the course of the last century alone. From an absolutist Shah to a parliamentary government in 1906, an elected prime minister back to a tyrannical Shah in 1953, and from that Shah to an Islamic theocracy in 1979. We're now witnessing what might be the fourth revolution, but its direction is unclear. There are many competing visions for Iran. There's little agreement on what the country should look like. There isn't a unified Iranian community. (laughs) So when we're talking about Iranians, we're talking about the Iranian monarchists, the Iranians who are still reformists, the Iranians who are pro-government, the Iranians who just are against everything. When I spoke to BBC Persian's Rana Rahimpur, she told me why it looks harder than ever for Iranians to find common ground. I think as a society that has grown up with lies, especially since the 1979 revolution, when the whole education system changed and it became an Islamic republic. So from the moment you go to school, you learn to lie. You have to pretend that your parents don't drink. You have to pretend that you all wear the hijab. And the problem with a society like that is that it believes lies, and it's very difficult to untangle those lies. The assumption is always that the other person is lying, and it's very difficult to to deal with those people that never assume that people might be truthful. Other countries have their own visions of Iran. Britain has a long history of them. The British Embassy in Tehran offered sanctuary to Iranian dissidents during the 1906 revolution. MI6 helped to overthrow the Iranian Prime Minister during the 1953 revolution, a revolution that was set in motion when Iran nationalised the Anglo-Persian oil company, a forerunner to BP. When the Shah fled Tehran in 1979, the British government dropped its support for him so it could sell arms to Ayatollah Khomeini, as it had done to the Shah. So it's perhaps unsurprising that many Iranians have a deep distrust of what they call Inglistan, even of BBC Persian. And they always think that, oh, but you work for Britain, and Britain did this, and Britain did that. So they always look for an extra motive or a hidden motive, and they think, oh, they're very clever, they're finding out they have the motive and people can't be straight. And journalists who really care about democracy always look for an extra motive, and that's very difficult to 
deal with. Britain first wanted Iran's oil, then it wanted to sell it arms. But Iran now accounts for less than 0.1% of the UK's trade. The international relations have changed. Britain's vision of Iran has changed. What does Britain want from Iran? The classic series of subjects we have tried to talk to Iran about on regional affairs are nuclear non-proliferation, countering terrorism, uh, ensuring that the Middle East peace process can uh, get somewhere, and human rights. And along with our European partners, we've achieved nothing on any of those headings. Sir Richard Dalton's long diplomatic career included postings as Britain's ambassador to Libya and consul general in Jerusalem, where he represented Britain to the Palestinians. His last posting was as the British ambassador in Tehran. We also want to solve bilateral problems that arise from time to time. Uh, Iranian arrest and imprisonment of British-Iranian dual nationals has been a serious impediment to civilised relationships with Iran because of the outrageous behaviour of the Iranians in seeking to use these cases as leverage to achieve negotiating objectives, whether with us or with other countries. But as Sir Richard Dalton told me, Britain has little leverage on Iran to pursue its agenda. You can bargain on particular issues, uh, and the United States and others have managed to rescue wrongly detained citizens or dual nationals by negotiating to let Iran have something that Iran wanted. But if you haven't got that, if you haven't got leverage, there's very little that can be done. There's very little influence that Britain can bring to bear on the tortured affairs of the Middle East. Iran does have a lot on its plate, and there's a lot that it wants. They are surrounded by enemy forces. Their economy is limping along under siege. People are getting poorer. Government is feeling the pinch in mobilising resources for everything that it wants to do. The population is discontented and disorderly. And there's a sense that amongst the large majority of the Iranian people, the Islamic ruling ideology of the country has been discredited. And there's a sense that change may come, albeit it's impossible to know when or how and how much fight there would be in the power structures of the Islamic Republic before any real change took place. So against that background, they look at countries on a basis of, well, what are they doing for us? Are they with us? Are they against us? And unfortunately, they would class the UK as being against them. There's now one immediate thing that Iran wants from Britain, and it's something Britain is actively fighting off. They see the activities of certain international broadcasters and social media activists as threatening the existence of the Islamic Republic. They consider, therefore, that it's legitimate for them 
to counter those efforts to destroy the Islamic Republic. And they have been willing, unfortunately and quite wrongly, to contemplate illegal means to do so. They see this front, the information war, as vital for the defeat of not just domestic opponents of their system of rule, but also what they regard as Western governmental hostility. They constantly talk about these broadcasters being arms of Western propaganda. Now, we know that's untrue, but to understand why they're doing what they're doing, why they're using illegal means, you have to understand the seriousness with which they perceive the threat. It isn't just Iran that commissions assassinations overseas. Its principal enemies, Israel and the United States, have been doing it for decades, particularly against Iranians. Israel's intelligence agency, Mossad, has allegedly assassinated a number of Iranian nuclear scientists in the past decade alone. The United States saw a sharp increase in Iranian plots against its citizens after it assassinated Qasem Soleimani in 2020. Soleimani was a senior official of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. The IRGC is a branch of Iran's army that enforces the aims of the 1979 revolution. Soleimani headed the Quds Force, an IRGC division specialized in conducting operations against Jewish targets overseas, including in the UK. In the middle of last year, the UK filed a notice with Interpol alleging a Quds Force operative, Mohammed Mehdi Mozayani, had helped to arrange attempted lethal operations against Iranian dissidents on its soil. Tiny level test, just to make sure that nothing has moved in the interim. Okay. What, um, how does this Do you sound? need us to speak again and just waffle on a little bit? Yeah. Is that sounding okay? In an office on the parliamentary estate, one that overlooks the Thames, I met the person whose job it is to know what the government is doing about these operations. The shadow security minister, Holly Lynch. It begs the question, what is the government really doing to get a grip of this, to make this a hostile operating environment for the IRGC and other representatives of Iran conducting that type of activity, threatening people here in the UK? And what more can the government do, do you think? I think there are two um, immediately obvious tools that you use in situations like this. One is sanctions against key individuals. Whilst the government will point to sanctions that it has deployed, actually most of those have been against Individuals who are in Iran will probably always stay in Iran. And so how effective have they been? There are others that we know have got business interests or assets here in the UK that we think they should be going further to use sanctions. But also looking to prescription powers. The US um, have designated the IRGC as a terrorist organisation given the way that they operate. It is slightly different and that it is an arm of a hostile state. We haven't done this before in the UK, but actually I think the seriousness of that conduct would uh, mean that prescription powers would give the police and security services additional tools to put a stop to it and get a grip of it and drive it out of the UK. I have asked this government now six times on the record in the House of Commons chamber why they haven't taken that step, 
which has got cross-party support actually across the benches, why they haven't taken that step of prescribing the IIGC. And so far, they've not been forthcoming with any sense of legitimate reason why they haven't done that yet. What do you think the reason might be? I get a sense from those working in the Home Office, from the Security Minister and the Home Secretary, that they understand the need to do this. It was heavily trailed that a, a... decision was imminent in the press at the start of the year. I asked James Cleverley as the Foreign Secretary only in the chamber last week, was it true that the Foreign Office was blocking efforts to prescribe the IOGC? He wasn't clear in responding to that allegation at all, I'm afraid to say. The Foreign Office didn't reply to my multiple requests for comment. But it's the Home Secretary who decides on prescriptions which criminalise membership, donations and support of designated groups. In a statement, the Home Office told me, While we do not comment on future designations, we will not stop taking strong action against Iran while they threaten people in the UK and around the world. We do not tolerate threats to life and intimidation of any kind towards individuals in the UK and will continue to use all the tools at our disposal to protect individuals in the UK against any threats from the Iranian state. The UK Parliament has debated the IRGC's prescription for more than a year. It seems a specific point, niche even, but it has come to stand for the UK's general stance on Iran. For many Iranians who oppose their government, it's a central campaigning goal. I spoke to Vahid Beheshti outside the Foreign Office on day 28 of his hunger strike. Uh, We came on hunger strike in front of UK's Foreign Affairs Office uh, with one very simple demand and at the same time very important and prescribe IRGC, place them on the list of terrorist organizations. IRGC is a terrorist organization. We have hundreds proven evidence, proven evidence, international proven evidence. And in the UK, Hezbollah is designated by UK government officially as a terrorist organization. IRGC is a founder and the main supporter of Hezbollah. Vahid Beheshti was still outside the Foreign Office when I recorded this podcast episode, on day 69 of his hunger strike. He's lost a significant amount of his body mass and is now in a wheelchair. If the Foreign Office is really blocking the IRGC's proscription, I wanted to know why. I wanted to know what the specific reasons might be. I met the government's independent reviewer of terrorism legislation in his chambers in the City of London. Before being appointed to this role by the Home Secretary, Jonathan Hall KC did a lot of national security litigation. He has full security clearance and uses it to advise Parliament on the right balance between what's needed to protect the public from terrorism and civil liberties. As soon as I heard that there was a possibility of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps being banned under the Terrorism Act, it really piqued my interest because I I know that that this has never happened to a a state body 
and the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is is a state body directed by the Ayatollah, um, part of the 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 the, the Islamic the, the Iranian state. So when I saw that, I was thinking, well, eventually, if a decision was made by the Home Secretary to ban it, it would have to go to Parliament for debate. It's a power under the Terrorism Act, and it was never contemplated that it would be used uh, for state entities. It's been used quite strongly against groups like Al Muhajirun, which is a well-known Islamist preaching organisation, which has been connected to a lot of attacks in the UK. What would happen if the UK were to proscribe? There is one prior question, which is, can states even commit terrorism? You can't prosecute someone for being a member of a state organisation. You can't go up to a member of the IRGC, who is a state employee, and say, we're going to prosecute you. But let's assume you can. So if you look at what terrorism is, it's doing violent things or threatening violent things like shooting or blowing up. It's doing that in order to intimidate a section of the public or get a government to change its mind. And it's doing it to advance an ideological cause. Now, if you were to say that any state body can fulfill the definition of terrorism and be prescribed, it's quite hard to see where you would draw any dividing lines because actually states enjoy a monopoly of violence in order to pursue political ideological goals. For example, and I just picked this at random, the French military who are fighting Islamic State in Mali, or were until recently, they would be pursuing a political goal. They would be using violence. They would be doing that to intimidate a section of the public, namely Islamic State operating in West Africa. So once you accept that a state can commit terrorism and be prescribed, it's quite hard to distinguish between a group like the IRGC and any other body that uses violence on behalf of the state. Could you maybe say, well, hang on a second, that's crazy because the IRGC, they're not like the French military. They won't be complying with the rules of war. But that's really difficult because, first of all, the law doesn't make that distinction. And secondly, you know, as a matter of fact, it's true that you know, even advanced Western militaries occasionally lapse. The second thing you could say is, but terrorists are unique because they use extreme methods. So they use the bomb rather than the ballot box. There's no reason, looking at the Terrorism Act definition, to distinguish between different sorts of mechanisms. And terrorism expressly applies to shooting someone, which is obviously something that the military do. And also, it will be the case that from time to time, you know, state bodies will use extreme methods. Proscription would send a powerful signal that the UK government regards the IRGC as an extremely bad actor. But the UK government is already sending signals. The UK placed an asset freeze on the IRGC in its entirety and travel bans on a number of its senior commanders. So you might ask, what would prescription add? The second thing is to ask, what can you do practically if you do prescription? Now, I've already indicated there may be difficulties with literally prosecuting a member of the IRGC. It's not clear to me what additional tools prescription would actually bring. If you were persuaded that, that there was some utility, for example, let's say a third party, someone who wasn't an Iranian, so an organised criminal, 
was working on behalf of the IRGC and it was possible to prove that, then I suppose having some sort of banning measure or prescription would allow you to prosecute that person, not just for, say, plotting to murder a member of Iran International, but even if you couldn't prove the plot to kill, you could prosecute them, for example, for giving money to or assisting the terrorist organisation. There's a new piece of legislation that's going through Parliament called the National Security Bill, and you could perhaps try and include a measure within that. The National Security Bill was introduced by the Home Secretary last year as the Counter-State Threats Bill. It introduces new criminal offences to make it easier to charge foreign agents with assassination and abduction plots. Do you think, in this case, prescription is simply the wrong tool to, to deal with the IRGC? Is it, yeah, is, I, are there other tools? Well, I do think it's the wrong tool because, personally, I think it would be undesirable for a decision to be made about the IRGC under the Terrorism Act, which would then lead to people questioning the very distinctions and definitions that we've relied upon quite successfully. As I've indicated, it could lead to politicisation of the terrorism definition. You can imagine, for example, someone saying, well, the Israeli Defence Force, look what they have done, and does that not, they would say hypothetically, meet the definition of terrorism, and therefore should the... And so quite quickly, something which is, say, of course there are political controversies about, and quite rightly about, the Terrorism Act definition, but it would become a lot more political. I wanted to find out how much of a concern the UK's international relations with Iran were in debates about proscription. I asked Jonathan Hall if this was something he could speak to me about. I do sit in on meetings um, whenever they consider the prescription of a group. So I do know what goes on behind the scenes and sorts of considerations. In theory, um, you would want to consider all the implications of a prescription, including reactions by Iran, other states and the like. I can't really go beyond that, though. Proscribing the Iranian state over, in part, its targeting of individuals in the UK is ultimately a policy decision. As a veteran CIA officer who worked on Iran told me, the job of intelligence officials is to brief ministers and then leave the room. Aside from the legal complexities, it has to be weighed against any potential retaliation from Iran. It's not the first time that Britain's domestic affairs have come into conflict with its foreign. Home Secretary Theresa May had resisted convening a public inquiry into Alexander Litvinenko's death in London so as not to jeopardise Britain's relations with Russia. Marina, his widow, had campaigned for an inquiry for years. A decade after his death, in 2016, she and her son Anatoly finally had some answers. This is what he said to me in the last series of London Grad. We got the report and naturally flicked to the back page to find out what what, what the actual, you know, <coughs> what the actual meat of a judgment was. And right at the end, it's sort of the coroner saying that this almost definitely happened, you know, the help of Russia probably at the behest of Putin. So him saying that directly. 
Theresa May only gave in to pressure to convene the public inquiry after Vladimir Putin annexed Crimea. Iran may not have reached that point yet, but there are similarities. They're of the na- same nature. Both, both governments are from very similar in nature and in their corruption and in their hostility towards journalists and activists. And the cost of any potential retaliation from Iran is lower. There will be repercussions. Russia can get away with it because, um, as we can see, the world relies on them for energy. Iran is already isolated. So I think Russia has more bargaining tools with the West than Iran does. At some point, the balance tips. For Russia, it took more than individual assassinations. It took the invasion of a sovereign state, a Western ally. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But when do we say enough is enough with Iran? It's not too late to negotiate with Iran where specific difficulties that impact on Britain and British individuals are concerned. Uh, Nor is it too late, nor is it ever too late to understand countries that are vitally important in the peace and security issues that affect their region. You've got to learn to do diplomacy with countries with which you have a poor relationship. If you only talk to countries with whom you have a good relationship, well, there will be quite a short list of countries. You certainly wouldn't remain in contact with Russia, for example. So I am a firm believer that you shouldn't burn your boats, even if it's very difficult to recover from a poor situation. 
there's no benefit to be had in making the situation worse unless, as I said, issue by issue, you can say, well, the benefits of doing something would exceed the costs. In this podcast, I ask myself some questions. Who are Iran's agents? Why isn't the UK prosecuting them? Who in Tehran is directing them? Why won't the UK take stronger action in response? In my reporting, I found 33 plots from Iran to assassinate or abduct individuals in the UK since the 1979 Islamic Revolution. MI5 and counter-terrorism police intercepted 15 of those plots since January 2022 alone. I found eight deaths related to those plots, mostly in the 1980s. Four of those deaths were of Iranian agents themselves, their bombs exploding prematurely. And in all this, only two prosecutions. An agent charged and released in a suspected prisoner swap in 1991, and a man who was charged in February with conducting surveillance on Iran International in Chiswick for the purposes of a terrorist act. He'll be tried at the Old Bailey this year. Iran has used criminal proxies to do its work. Eastern European gang members of thieves-in-law, a muscled biker from Hell's Angels, a heroin trafficking cartel, and Lebanese Hezbollah. Behind these proxies have been high-ranking Iranian officials, ones from the Ministry of Intelligence, ones from the Quds Force of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. In the UK, they have long plotted against Jewish and Israeli targets, but they started out by plotting against dissidents, ones who sought refuge in London and posed a threat to a newly formed state, the Islamic Republic. Now that the Iranian state's problems have changed, its targets in the UK have changed. Iranian journalists who broadcast in Persian on the largest protest to rock the Islamic Republic since its inception. Journalists who thought they were safe here and out of reach from Iran. When I got the job offer from the BBC in 2008, and I was very excited. My mom was excited. My dad was tearful. But he said, it's a great opportunity. Take it, but never come back. This is your dream job, but do not come back. Have you been back? No. no. You haven't no. been back since 2008? No. Rana Rahimpur has left her job at BBC Persian in London, her dream job, since our interview. When she informed counter-terrorism police officers of her resignation, they told her that her life may now get a little bit easier. When Rana Rahimpur told me this, it struck me as the whole story in a grain of sand. She came to London to report on Iran in Persian, because she couldn't do it from her home country. But the Iranian government's threats and harassment followed her here. And while the British authorities advised and protected her, the most effective solution seemed to be leaving her BBC Persian role. 
It's not just Rana's life that may get a little bit easier. Now that she's left BBC Persian, Iranian officials might think that she'll no longer be scrutinizing them. But Rana Rahimpur and the other journalists we've spoken to aren't going away. They say they want to do more for Iranians. The UK government might want to do the same. Thanks for listening. You can get ad-free listening by subscribing to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts or joining Tortoise as a member, where you can access more of our reporting, live events, and support our work for just £60. Just visit tortoisemedia.com slash hitsquads for this exclusive offer. If you enjoyed this series, we would really appreciate you rating it on the app and leaving a review. Your ratings and reviews help us at Tortoise to continue our in-depth reporting. This series is written and reported by me, Paul Carana Galizia. It's produced by Joanna Humphreys. The sound design and original theme is by Tom Kinsella. Artwork is by John Hill. The editor is Jasper Corbett. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.